today I want to finish with just sort of ultra practical. Um, and, and since we kind of talked last week about how, as a whole, Vatican II, what it changed in the church was the way in which the church speaks to the world. So the language that we use and the, the tenor of it, the form, not the content. Uh, as we saw from the actual definitions, nothing, there's nothing new in the definitions. But in terms of the form, the way in which we speak, and the, the desire of the church to speak directly to the whole world instead of just to the hierarchy and then have the hierarchy speak out to the world is, is a substantial change. No matter if there's no teachings that have changed, it's a substantial change nonetheless. Now, where, where, the, where the visible aspects of the church have changed has been in the liturgy. Uh, that's when people think of changes. That was kind of what everyone named in that first session when I said, you know, what changed after Vatican II? Pretty much everybody seemed to have in their mind the changes were changes in the liturgy. Uh, the, the Holy Mass, and then even just the way in which the sacraments uh, were given, uh, and, then, and then also sort of some of the things around the sacraments, sort of like uh, you know, the urgency of, or, or, or a rethink of, an, of anointing, a rethinking of baptism. And we talked about that when we were talking about uh, Lumen Gentium, sort of this going from this very strict idea of if you're not baptized, or if you're not actually just a member of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, then you're going to hell having a more expansive view of that. What does, what does that actually mean in the modern world when we have Christians who aren't Catholic and then unbap- unbaptized people that we know have never heard the gospel and all those, all those sort of like things that we have to grapple with and are very real. Uh, but in the end, when people think about Vatican II, they think about the Mass and the way in which it changed in, in, and what seems like huge and substantial changes in the liturgy. Uh, I, I, pulled, I pulled a really, I mean, you can go down a rabbit hole if you Google like Novus Ordo or New Mass versus Traditional Mass. If you want to read some just angry, bitter, visceral statements, I mean, blog after blog after blog, just talking about how the Mass was destroyed in Vatican II and the new mass, the Novus Ordo, this innovation is just nothing but Satan, the smoke of Satan in the sanctuary of the church and all these things. So, I mean, you, we know that there's been at least three or four schismatic movements that have broken from the church after Vatican II because of the liturgy, because of, especially because of the document on the liturgy uh, led by... I don't know if he was just a bishop or if he was cardinal, Lefebvre, who, who signed the document, Sacra Santum Concilium, and then later retracted and broke from the church with two other bishops. And so there was enough bishops in that schismatic group to ordain other bishops. And now we have the Society of St. Pius X. And then from the Saint Society of St. Pius X, another group fractured off that was even more traditional called the Society of St. Pius V, because they didn't like the reforms of Pius X. And then I had a buddy in seminary who joked about 
starting a fracture group from St. Pius V called St. Pius I, where he would only do mass in Greek because Latin was an innovation in the third and fourth century. And then he would start another group breaking off from that that only celebrated mass in Hebrew and Aramaic because that's the original language of the mass. So anyways, you can go down that rabbit hole all day long if you want. And I pulled a little, uh, a little passage and I thought this passage was interesting just actually just because it speaks to kind of what I'm going to go into, which is just like what actually changed in the new mass? Like what, what is different about the mass that we celebrate today than what is actually different from the 1962 missile? Uh, because it's actually not as much as we think. The fact that it's in English makes it seem huge, but it's actually not very different. Um, it's not the biggest liturgical reform even in the last 300 years. Actually, the reforms of Pius X were more substantial in the changing of the liturgy. But anyways, this is, this is from a traditionalist blog. <laughs> uh, he said, even in the original Latin form, the Novus Ordo was a doctrinal travesty that displayed its intent to destroy the Tridentine Mass. A total of 35 prayers, or approximately 70% of the Tridentine Mass, were replaced or discarded, as well as many brief versicles and responses, more than 20 signs of the cross, 12 genuflections, and multiple other acts of reverence. Thus, the break with the sacred tradition and dogma was accomplished. It should be recalled that the authors of this travesty were members of the committee called the Concilium, headed by Archbishop Budnini, whose Freemasonic connections are almost certain to be real. Assisting the group were six Protestant observers, whom Paul VI publicly thanked for their help in re-editing in a new manner liturgical texts so that the Lex Orandi, the Law of Prayer, conformed better with the Lex Credendi, the Law of Belief. One can only wonder how Protestant heretics could offer any help in formulating the very right that they rejected. So that's the mood. Now, I actually only read that because of this, the parts of the mass that this blogger pointed to, the 70% number, absolutely fake. That's just a fake number. It's not true. But there were many prayers. I don't know about 35. I I'd have to look de- in a detailed way through it, but I, I don't, I just don't buy that number. Um, I'd need to check it, though. It might be a total of 35 if you look at all the different, perhaps, prefaces or, or antiphons or something like that. 20 signs of the cross and 12 genuflections, I believe, because there were very strict rules on when a priest would do the sign of the cross, and I think it was every time the word Oh, no, there is a bow, a slight bow, every time the word, the name Jesus was, was said out loud. And actually, I still, even in our liturgy today, each time we say the name Jesus, I'll do a little, kind of like, to note it. But that was in the rubrics of the Mass, uh, in, the old, in the old rite. And then 12 genuflections, I think there were a total of, someone has told me 17 genuflections, and then I've heard 23 as well. Probably depends on whether it's a low Mass or high Mass. Uh, lot of, the priest was genuflecting a lot uh, in, the, in the Old Mass. And certainly a lot of those were taken out uh, in the Novus Ordo. There's actually only two times when the priest genuflects. Do you know when it is? 
Yeah, so right after the consecration of the bread and then the consecration of the wine. Uh, those are the only two times in which the priest genuflects. Never mind. There's a third after the after the silent prayers before the Lamb of God. So I guess there's three three genuflections um, in the Novus Ordo. And then I guess at the beginning of Mass and at the end of Mass, or beginning of Mass is a bow, unless the tabernacle is in the sanctuary. And then once you go in, then you focus on the altar. And then I guess at the end of Mass, you would genuflect if the tabernacle is in the sanctuary too. So there could be up to five genuflections. Um, I don't even think of things that way anymore. But But certainly there was a lot of those small things taken out, which might seem, at least at first, to be, at least to seem less reverent. But... In the in the we could get into this a little bit more, but in the in the Roman rite, the principle has always been noble simplicity, and what that means is like is less is more, so you do it once and you do it well. You don't have to do it a hundred times to prove that you're reverent. I mean, it's just sort of like we do our we pray in the liturgy like we ought to pray in private, which is. You don't just repeat for the sake of repeating. If you do it once with your whole heart, then the Lord understands. He he receives that. There's no need for 17 genuflections if you know one genuflection will do in that sense. Um, and that's always been kind of how the liturgy has worked in the Roman Church, and and we were trying to recover that in Vatican II, which is why some of these things were stripped away. Now. I gave you a document that has the prayers at the foot of the altar. Um, we can just go through some of the different prayers that were removed, or the different things that were actually removed from the Roman liturgy, uh, from the Roman Missal, at you know during you know at the guidance of Sacrosanctum Concilium, but mostly afterwards in the sort of follow-up documents. Uh, did I not give? Oh, never mind. I didn't give those ones. So I gave the Leonine prayers, which are the ones at the end. Uh, I forgot to pray out, print out the prayers at the foot of the altar. So when has, it, has everyone here been to a traditional Latin mass? Okay. So, but you might remember the priest and the servers process in, and they would stop right at the foot of the altar. And they would basically just stand there silently praying to each other, probably while a hymn, while a hymn or probably the entrance antiphon was being chanted, or probably just in silence. But they're just standing there, and the priest is standing, the altar server is kneeling, and they're praying kind of back and forth in call and response style. But they're not doing it out loud. They're actually just whispering it to one another. And in that, there's there's a whole host of sort of prayers that are being said, uh, and it's actually like by far the most intense part of the server's day, because they're supposed to have all of these things memorized. I think, depending on your priest, you were allowed to have a kind of card to help you remember the order of things, Uh, and it's a very specific little ritual, and it lasts a good, you know, five to eight minutes, depending on how quickly they're saying it. Some of them can say it 
very quickly. So they get through it rather uh, efficiently. But it, it basically, yeah, the it, it consists of, for the most part, a sort of the int- introductory prayer, sort of like calling upon the Lord. So if you've ever heard the phrase like, our help is in the name of the Lord. Do you guys remember the response to that? Yeah, who made heaven and earth. That's the beginning of the you know, prayers at the foot of the altar. And then you have the, uh, I mean, it's, it's, they're beautiful prayers. They're just kind of calls. Yeah, so in, we have to understand, I guess, in the, what it developed over time, and this is something that I think is a beautiful thing about the Novus Ordo, and, and that was made possible in many ways by modern technology. But the server in the in the extraordinary form was the representative of the whole congregation. So the role of the server was to be the people in the pews. And so there was a ton of interaction between the priest and the server in particular. If you look at servers in the extraordinary form mass, they're doing everything. They're all over the place. And they're responding honestly more than we call and respond in the Novus Ordo. The server says back and forth to the priest more things than we than we as a congregation say today. And that's because they're the representatives of the congregation. Now that's partly because there were a ton of private masses. So in the I mean you have to remember the there were just a lot more priests back in the day. There's just way more priests. I mean at a, at a parish this size you'd, you'd easily have four to six priests depending uh, we had we had five priests in White Sulphur Springs at one point. I mean, there's so many priests in this diocese. And, I mean, yeah, you go to Butte, there was serious 30 to 40 priests in Butte at all times, pretty much. Now, there's just not that many masses that need to be said on a weekend, or especially on a daily basis. You don't have five daily masses. So then one priest is saying mass, four priests are saying a private mass. And so if, if the majority of the masses in the church are being said, Basically, privately. What's that? What if I'm not a private mass would be like a mass basically with just them and a server, with no congregation. Because prior to the Novus Ordo, you couldn't concelebrate. There, only one priest could celebrate mass. You couldn't have other priests celebrating mass with him. Well, because the tradition in the church is that every priest celebrates mass every day. Yeah, so if so if you weren't, I mean, perhaps they could, if it was a high mass, which you wouldn't ever do at daily mass, you could serve as the deacon if you're a priest, or you could serve as the subdeacon. But you couldn't concelebrate the mass, as a, unless it was an ordination of a priest, or the chrism mass during Holy Week, which when everyone concelebrates with the bishop, I think that's literally it. That's or your own ordination. A priest could concelebrate with the bishop at his ordination. But that's it. Those were the only masses that concelebration, where mul- multiple priests were celebrating at that mass, could happen. So then that's why in a lot of churches you'd have the main altar and then you'd have all these side altars everywhere. It wasn't just for decoration, it was because there could be 18 masses happening all at once. Yeah, that was one of the that was one of the great things of Vatican II was was the renewal of concelebration uh, in the church. And 
I don't really know the full history of how that stopped happening because certainly in the early church, especially in the early church, the bishop was the celebrant. Because when you had small communities, every community was basically the bishop and his people until it grew to the point where you needed priests for the countryside and all that or there were enough people for more than one congregation per town. Then, you'd, then that was when the, the growth of the presbyter, the priest, happened because basically I am a... I am delegated by the bishop to celebrate the sacraments. I am not a standalone person in that sense. I have to have faculties from the bishop. I can't just go rogue. Um, he could, he would, if he removed my faculties tomorrow, I'm not allowed to celebrate any sacrament. Well, can a bishop go rogue? A bishop can go rogue. That's, that's kind of what pious society of Pius X, um, as long as he gets a couple other bishops to go rogue with him, um, then they could, you know, ordain bishops and basically two. Yeah, so they have to at least have two. Yeah, so you can't go solo. Uh, you'd have to convince at least, yeah, you'd have to convince at least one other person. And that's why there are schismatic groups. Those tend not to last very long in that sense, but, um, but really, if you think about the whole Eastern Orthodox Church, those were a whole, you know, portion of the church that broke with Rome in 1054 and are still, you know, functioning and, and legitimate. All the sacraments are real. They're all valid. And only they're not in communion with Rome. And then you also have some, sort of other smaller groups um, who, who have maintained certain sacraments. I mean, and then you could say all, all Protestant churches have at least maintained the sacraments of baptism and then depending on the church, perhaps marriage. Um, but so there's, there's obviously those things outside the church, although uh, most Protestant churches didn't continue ordination in, its, in a valid form, so they lost uh, like legitimate bishops and priests. Like the Anglican church uh, no longer has legitimately ordained priests and bishops because they changed the ordination rite substantially uh, under Elizabeth. So that's why if they come over, there's the Anglican Ordinariate where they come over back into communion with the church, but they have to be ordained again. Whereas if, if an Eastern Orthodox priest becomes Catholic, like comes back into union with Rome, he doesn't need to be ordained again. He's already ordained. Uh, so those are the slight differences there. But coming back to the prayers at the foot of the altar, uh, we... we uh, You'd go kind of call and response, the priest and then the server who represents the, the congregation, kind of going back and forth and then moving up into the sanctuary. The reason why those prayers at the foot of the altar were removed from the liturgy itself is because it wasn't until, I believe, the 18th century. I'd have to look back at, the, uh, at a reference for this. They might have grown up slightly earlier. They might have existed earlier, but... In terms of actually entering into the liturgy itself, it was 18th or even 19th century when they actually became a part of the liturgy. What they were originally was prayers that were said by the priest and the server in the sacristy before Mass, and they would say these prayers, kind of preparing for Mass, and then they would come out and celebrate the Mass. But somehow, just over the course of time, they moved from the sacristy to the foot of the altar 
and then actually sort of made their way into the Roman Missal itself. And so they weren't, you could say in that sense, they're innovations of the 18th, 19th century. That it was not an ancient part of the liturgy. And these prayers, although beautiful, are not um, are not sort of the they're not ancient prayers that are that have always been a part of the liturgy. So what the what Vatican II was doing in pulling them out of the Roman Missal was sort of taking away an accretion, a beautiful one, but one that was not original to the Mass. And so in that sense, it's sort of taking us back to a, a more ancient time uh, in the Mass. So then, so the prayers at the foot of the altar and then moving up into the sanctuary, those prayers at the foot of the altar removed. Second thing is, almost all the responses that were specific to the server in the extraordinary form are now the whole congregation. And that, to be honest, is made possible by microphones and amplification. So a priest would have killed himself trying to make himself heard to a massive church and actually have a call and response before amplification, whereas now it's pretty easy. I can just speak with a normal voice, everybody can hear it, everybody can respond in kind, uh, and now so we don't have to have the server standing in for everybody. Um, there's the confidior, in which we say, you know, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters. That used to be the only form, that sort of longer confidior. Now we have two other options, both of which we've, we kind of rotate through all three of them uh, at Christ the King. And the confidior was sort of longer and more uh, more involved in the in the extraordinary form, and it was between it was also just the server and the priest. Now you know I say, I, Lord have mercy, you respond, and then Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. It used to just be the priest and server saying the confidior, uh, and that those call and responses together, and it was nine times instead of three or nine times instead of six, I guess you could say now. Um, so it's been slightly simplified, and other options have been given, and now the whole congregation does it. So that's the second change. Um, now, in the extraordinary form, you could probably say a lot of these prayers, and to be honest, I'm not super educated on the, uh, the secret prayers of the priest. They call them the secret prayers, but that's just basically because they were said silently. Uh, and and there was a few different parts during the Mass. I don't know the details of them because I, I've never actually gone and done the one to two week long course where you learn how to do the extraordinary form. Uh, and the there were secret prayers said and most of those secret prayers have been eliminated. I still, at three different t parts during the Mass, will say prayers silently to where the whole congregation doesn't uh, hear them. One of them is basically saying, Lord, I'm about to receive the Eucharist. I hope it doesn't condemn me. Uh, you know, like, like, please let, please let me not, please let me not be in serious sin <laughs> right now. Um, that's kind of, that's one of them. It's actually, it's, it's a, it's a more positive prayer than that. Uh, 
No, so that's that would be the individual prayer. The we all say it together when we say when I say behold the Lamb of God, the old name who takes away the sins of the world. Um, and then the prayer that we all say together is sort of the public version of that prayer. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm just silently praying uh, to myself. One of them is sort of like, Lord, prepare my heart for the Eucharist. You know, before I say, wash me, Lord, of my iniquities and cleanse me of my sins, there's a silent prayer I say before that. And actually, I guess the wash me, Lord, of my iniquities one is silent too. Not everyone's hearing that. Uh, and then before receiving the Eucharist, I say, uh, you know, body of Christ, keep me safe for eternal life. Blood of Christ, keep me safe for eternal life. Those are actually cool prayers for everybody to say if you, you know, as you come up for the Eucharist, body of Christ, keep me safe for eternal life. Blood of Christ, keep me safe for eternal life. That's a, they're, they're beautiful little prayers. And they're just said silently because I think it's sort of like calling upon the, it's like reminding me of my humanity in the midst of the, but they're not me acting in the person of Christ per se. So that's why they're silent and not out loud. And there were just obviously a lot more of those in the extraordinary form. The third thing would be, so the preface, which the, the preface is the prayer after the offertory prayer. So there's the setting of the altar and then the, the I would I say, you know, I, out of the context, I can I, I often I'll forget these words. Um, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours. So I say that prayer. People stand up at various points. <laughs> And then, uh, actually, Christ the King is pretty unified in standing right away, which I appreciate. Uh, it's better than half the people standing right away and then half, like, waiting until the very end. It's a weird thing. Anyways, everybody stands. And then we say, uh, together, basically, accept these gifts, O Lord. Then I'd say, you know, the Lord be with you, with your spirit, lift up your hearts. You know, and then, and then after that, I say the preface, which the preface is, we used to have very few prefaces, and now there's a good 50-something options for prefaces. A lot of new prefaces were introduced at the Second Vatican Council for various things. We have eight options, I believe, for Sundays. We have seven common preface options, which would be just for daily masses and normal kind of low-key masses. Two options for the Eucharist, two options for martyrs, two options for saints three or four for the Blessed Mother. Uh, yeah, there's just a lot of preface options. And then there's prefaces for particular feast days. All the feast days have their own prefaces, which I think has actually always been the case. Uh, and then there's prefaces for certain votive masses. So it's sort of like the way, it's sort of introducing us to the, th the sort of spiritual theme for that mass and preparing our hearts for the Eucharistic prayer. Um, so lots of new prefaces. Which I there's I don't think you can argue at all that that is a bad thing. That is a beautiful thing, sort of expanding our spirituality uh, in great ways. I should probably sort of preach on the prefaces more or, or like talk about them more just because they're they're great. And it's it's during a part of the mass where it's easy to just not pay attention for a minute and then it just blows by and you just don't hear a single word of it. Uh, so that's that's that can be a thing. And also, I get to hear, I usually choose one and say it for the whole week, and so I get to hear it three times. Everybody else only gets to hear it once, and it's easy for something to just go right by you uh, if you're only hearing it once. Usually it's the third time. To a certain extent, on Sundays, 
you have to use one of the eight that are for Sundays. But on during weekdays, you can't use the Sunday ones, but you can use any of the commons. You can, I mean, during weekdays, you can use whatever preface you want, pretty much, other than Sundays. Uh, and then on certain feast days, you have to use that preface. Um, or like on the feast day of a saint, or a larger feast day, you're, you're say if like it's a martyr, like Isaac jokes today, I'm really supposed to use the martyr preface. Um, though I could probably use a different one, like a common preface, it just wouldn't really flow well in that sense. Um, so you're supposed to use kind of whatever's going on at that time, but that still leaves plenty of opportunity for um, for changing it up. So lots of prefaces. The, one of the more controversial things about the Second Vatican Council, I would say for sure, is the introduction of new Eucharistic prayers. And that, I, I have mixed feelings about it. I can see why it's somewhat of a controversy, because the Roman canon, I've used it once, I've used it, I mean, I'll use it once in a while on Sundays here, actually. I, I use it a decent amount. It's the, it's the Eucharistic prayer that has the lists of names. You know, we list off the 12 apostles at one point. It's longer than all the other ones. That's, that's what everyone complains about. But then, um, and then it lists off the martyrs, like the four or five pope martyrs, and then the four or five uh, women martyrs from the first through third centuries. It has, it has the two long lists of names, and it's just a longer Eucharistic prayer than the other ones. That was the only Eucharistic prayer in use in the Catholic Church for a solid 800 to 1,000 years. It's the only prayer we used during the Eucharist, the only prayer for oh, prayer of consecration. And at the Second Vatican Council, we introduced Eucharistic Prayer 3, which, to be honest, is probably the one I use the most during daily Mass and, and then on Sunday Masses. Um, I'll either use the original Roman canon or Eucharistic Prayer 3. Then the one that's probably the most controversial is Eucharistic Prayer 2 because it's rather short. Like, I mean, once in a while at a daily Mass, if I'm like, ah, I preach too long, uh, I gotta, and, and you know, it's 12, 15 Mass, people have work again at 1, I'm gonna say Eucharistic Prayer 2. It's a legitimate Eucharistic prayer, it has the elements, it's just condensed. Um, and part of the reason why people are angry about it is because there's rumors. Who knows whether the rumors are true, but the rumor is that someone literally wrote that Eucharistic prayer on a napkin at a coffee shop during the Second Vatican Council and then presented it, and it was approved for the Roman Missal, which doesn't seem like a very sort of reverent or prayerful way to you know, formulate a Eucharistic prayer which makes me think it's just a conspiracy theory. I don't know. I haven't really checked into that story because I don't really care. The church approved it, which means, and it's, and it's sort of beautifully worded in many ways, um, it's just short. So honestly, just for the sake of sort of reverence and beauty, I'll use some of the longer ones because they can elaborate on themes more deeply, themes that we need to talk about in the Eucharistic prayers. Uh, but if time is short, or if I'm celebrating Mass, in the middle of winter in the forest, which I do every year at Discovery, uh, I'm probably going to use Eucharistic Prayer too because we're, you know, because it's cold and like we don't have to kneel in the snow for nine minutes while I list off saints' names. I mean, there's something beautiful about that, but like 
It's just unnecessary. There's a certain noble simplicity to the Eucharistic prayers. And then there's a, there's a fourth one that I'm not going to lie, I rarely ever use. Um, it's supposedly the sort of, it, it's supposedly sort of uh, a prayer that was formulated according to St. Hippolytus's third century Eucharistic prayer. Uh, and I've never really fact-checked that, but it's really it's a really oddly worded Eucharistic prayer, and I've just and it also has a preface that you have to use with it, and it's also very long, and it's just unfamiliar to a lot of people. So maybe I should move into it a little bit more often, but I don't use that one. So there's now four Eucharistic prayers, and that disturbs some people. After having one one of them for so long, suddenly introducing three new ones seems like a huge innovation, especially at such an important part of the Mass. So that, I can sort of understand people being unsettled by that a little bit. Um, but... Sure, well, these ones never would have existed in Latin because they were introduced... Well, they do exist, they do exist in Latin. But yeah, prior, the, the, the one Eucharistic prayer was in Latin. Now, I would say that anyone who went to Mass consistently would have probably had... would have actually known what happened, like what that prayer was saying in English if they would have cared at all. Because everyone had their little daily Roman Missal that has everything translated into English. And it's like, well, I'm hearing the same thing every Sunday for my entire life. I could probably just look through the English and maybe not know word for word what was happening, but know sort of what was being said. I mean... At least to say, oh yeah, word. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's plenty of bells being rung at specific times during Mass to remind you of where you are in the extraordinary form. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you go to Spanish Mass, you, you, I mean, there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to follow along with the Spanish Mass for sure. I mean, we celebrated Mass in Spanish at the seminary once a week when I was down in Denver because they're, I mean, 55% of the Catholics in Denver are Hispanic. Uh, and so we'd do it once a week because all the Denver kids needed to learn Spanish. I mean, I would read the gospel in Spanish. I have no idea. I never learned Spanish. I never even took a class in Spanish. But I just practiced enough until I could pronounce everything right. And then I read the dang thing in Spanish. And, I mean, I, I couldn't read it word for word, but I knew the gospel, and I'd looked at the English already. So, um, it, you know, it wasn't a big deal. We'd even do Mass in Latin once a month. Uh, just actually mainly because guys were in Latin class and it was actually a good application. We did the Novus Ordo. We didn't do the the old traditional Mass. We just did the normal Mass we do here, but in Latin, except for the readings and those sorts of things. Um, so we just do all the sort of like the Eucharistic prayer and then the prayers that we say every Sunday. We just do that part in Latin, um, which we'll get to here at the end. Um, we're supposed to, as Catholics, be able to do that. Uh, so, prefaces, Eucharistic prayers. Then, if you've ever, if you remember too, at the end of Mass, this was this is something that was always a little weird for me when I would go to a, a, a traditional Latin Mass. And so you'd literally, the priest would say, you know, "Ite misa est, Deo gratias," you know, like Mass is ended. Thanks be to God. And then he'd turn around 
I mean, read another gospel. So <laughs> there's the second gospel, which is the prologue of John, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John was read at the end of every single Mass. And, which is a beautiful Gospel, and honestly, we should read that Gospel as much as possible. But, it, it is almost... Alright, well, I'll go on to something else. So that, that, that has been removed, as well as what I did actually think, I'm pretty sure I printed for you, the Leonine Prayers. Which is prayers after the low mass. So Hail Mary three times, Salve Regina, and then St. Michael the Archangel. And then three most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Three of those. So those were the collection of prayers that were said at the foot of the altar at the end of every mass. So. This is so I must have copied this straight from that same blog too. Um, yeah, that's I didn't even notice that. <laughs> refuse to condemn communism. I don't know what that has anything to do with the Leonine prayers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hold on. That's so that's so interesting. I did not notice those were there. I was I was looking at that first paragraph. No, I wasn't looking at any of them, I guess, because that first paragraph is pretty sketchy too. Uh, probably from that same blog. But the that he had listed off the prayers. That's why I printed them. Uh, that's wow, that's wild. So, anyways, the I'd, I'd have to look into that. I mean, the church has condemned communism a lot. There's no shortages of common condemnation of communism and the teachings of the church, so I don't know where this guy's thinking that we failed on that front. Um, the church is certainly not perfect, but a failure to condemn communism is not one of the places in which we failed. Okay. I would So, the second gospel, and then the prayers after the mass, the Leonine prayers, were removed for the same reason that the prayers at the foot of the altar at the beginning of Mass were removed. Because originally, those prayers were said in the sacristy after Mass had concluded. They would go into the sacristy, they'd read the prologue, and then they'd say those prayers together. And just like the prayers at the foot of the altar at the beginning of Mass, they had sort of made their way into the liturgy itself. Which is why it's sort of, it's sort of odd, because the priest says, go in peace, but don't go in peace. We're doing a couple more things. Uh, so that's so it's like literally happens after mass, but was still a part of mass. And so for anyone who's not used to it, it's sort of jarring, and rightly so. And it doesn't mean none of those things should exist. There's actually, if you go to a lot of parishes now, a lot of people will, a lot of parishes will still say, at the foot of the altar after mass has ended, the Saint Michael prayer. That's become pretty common again. The, the Gospel of John. It was the same Gospel every day. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, that, that whole sort of beautiful prologue of John was proclaimed at the end of every Mass 
uh, after every mass, but still kind of during every mass. That was kind of that was the odd part about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not even against reintroducing the the Saint Michael prayer at the end of mass. A lot of people enjoy it. It's a beautiful prayer, and and in many ways, it's just sort of good to keep the spiritual realm at the forefront of our mind. And that's, I'd say, if that becomes a strong tradition at a lot of different places, I'd be happy to join in on it. I did have a priest buddy who said, like, you know, let's put first things first on that one. Like, we all just received the Eucharist. Uh, that's the best defense against the evil one that we have. So then thinking that, like, in this very moment, do we really need to also call upon the archangels? And then I'm like, okay, well, yeah, yes and no. Like, we still bless ourselves with holy water as we leave the church. That's obviously not as powerful as the Eucharist either. It's like, why not everything, you know? All things. They're all great. But who knows? I haven't I haven't not decided on that, and I don't think I probably would unless... What's up? Sure, yeah, so he probably still does all those yeah, prayers pretty much. Oh, yeah, so they still do the full-on. Oh, wow, yeah. See, the thing the thing about all these is, I think, when you add up all of these small things that were removed, it does add up to a solid 10 to 15 minutes of Mass dedicated to these prayers, which were not an ancient practice. So all of this came about in the 18th or 19th century. All the things that were removed in that sense. And they and they started to add up. And at a certain point, it's it's always the history of the church that, you know, we tack on and tack on and tack on. Uh, and then and then we think, hey, we got to strip some of this away partly to make way for new traditions. Because new traditions are going to make their way into the mass. That's just the way it is. The, the church is always changing and evolving. Um, in those devotional ways. And so we don't want to take all these devotions, which they are devotions, as much as people want to make it seem like this is the ancient tradition of the Mass. They're devotions that had made their way into the liturgy. And so we don't want to canonize devotions uh, because devotions are not, you know, they're not immemorial. They change as time goes on. So you strip down these devotions in order to make way for new ones. Because if we kept just tacking on devotion after devotion, daily Mass would be an hour and a half long. No one would go to daily Mass. So we stripped them all down. Daily Mass has made its way back to being, you know, 30 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes, depending on who, how long the priest is preaching. And, the, uh, and then we can sort of begin anew and sort of, you know, see which devotions come about as, ter- as the time goes, as time moves forward. And that's fine. I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that, uh, and I think it's, uh, you know, if people want to add the St. Michael prayer again, great. Father Wong, honestly, probably celebrated the extraordinary form for 20 years as a priest, so he's probably pretty attached to the prayers at the foot of the altar and still wants to say them. That's fine. Uh, and as long as it's just that, what's it add? Two minutes. Not, it's not the end of the world. So... I'll just, uh, I, I think I, get, I gave you a sheet with the definitions. Uh, and this, this is, I think, why a lot of priests were 
refreshed with the new rubrics of the mass. So the new rubrics of the mass are fairly specific, but um, I think I put like, I don't know what the sheet was titled. It's just got all the numbers and it starts with bow, medium bow, profound bow. Do you got that one? So um, in the old rubrics of the mass, the rubrics of the mass were very specific. Like I was reading through just to refresh uh, a guide for the extraordinary form for priests, and it was 50 pages long. And that was just a, that wasn't like the, the germ, the full rubrics. That was just like specific suggestions and all those different things. And the red was almost as intense as the black, which means you're doing a lot. Uh, and there's a lot of very specific things. And part of that was in order to stop crazy things from happening in the liturgy, and I'm sure there was a lot of that, but what actually ended up happening was it made things so rigid that that like every movement of the priest was set in the rubrics. I mean, just, th- just look at the bows. You have three different bows, and you have to hold to those specific bows. Bows, just the head, medium bow, head and shoulders, profound bow from the waist until the torso is nearly parallel to the floor. That's how specific it is. It's, it's military in its specificity. Iran's position. So hands at shoulder level, separated to the width of the shoulders, palms facing each other, you know, joined hands at chest level, palm to palm, right thumb crossed over the left thumb. Like, yeah, you don't want to, you put your left thumb over the right thumb, that means you're a goat, that means you're on the left, and that means you're going to hell. Right thumb over the left thumb means you're a sheep, you're on the right, you're going to heaven. I still tell servers that just because it's funny. But the, uh, and it gives them some, something to think about so they don't get distracted. Spinning. <laughs> Spin, if they're not doing that, they're spinning their tassel or they're like kicking something or, or like flipping their alb around. And yeah, you've got to give them something to think about. Otherwise, they're going to be all over the place. So, um, That's why you need a yeah, <laughs> hands on the altar. Maybe, I mean, it's just very, very specific. Yeah, the holy name, Jesus, 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 or Jesus, requires a bow to the cross. Not even just a bow. I didn't know it was a bow to the cross. At the right side of the altar, meaning the epistle side, as you face the altar, and then liturgically speaking, you know, at the left side of the altar. So there's a lot of... Um, it was so specific, and and you know, for better or for worse, a lot of priests really thought of themselves as as held, like bound to that in a way that was that was not fruitful. So you'd hear guys say things like, "You mess up one of those rubrics, mortal sin." It's like you you miss a genuflection, mortal sin. You 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 miss a sign of the cross, mortal sin. And that was how it was treated, for better or for worse. You know, like, was that actually the case? I haven't found any evidence to say that, like, breaking a small rubric on accident was a mortal sin, but that was the way guys were receiving it. Um, now, that also might be sort of like troll on the time, like a sort of, yeah, this is how bad it was. Um, but, but that's also, uh, regardless if that was the mood of the day, and also that's just not how the mass ought to be like it it shouldn't be sort of willy-nilly do whatever you want but it's also it's also not uh it's not supposed to be a sort of like i don't know 
premeditated act in the sense of like, I mean, you just, I would want it to look like the Last Supper, which was not casual, but it also was not a military exercise. You know what I mean? So the Last Supper was a serious thing because Jesus was revealing what he was going to do and it was, it was a sort of sacrifice and banquet. So there was certainly a lot of ritual to it because it was a Passover meal, but it also wasn't rigid and cold. And with, with rubrics like this, it lends itself to a rigid and cold thing. That doesn't mean it's predestined to be that. I'm sure there were priests who were able to bring it to life um, and people who were able to experience it that way. Obviously, there were still saints. There was still plenty of fruit in the church. The church was growing, but um, it needed reform. And so I, I, I think Vatican II did well in reforming that. Now, we've got two minutes, dang it, to uh, try to go over things that were not removed, that I think people think were removed uh, at Vatican II. So one was, I gave you this sheet for Latin. Latin. Uh, it says, the particular law remaining in force, the use of the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rites. Um, now, that's why you see, I mean, and that's why people might get kind of scared, like, oh, um, anytime the sort of like Latin starts to be reintroduced, you're like, oh my gosh, we're going back to pre-Vatican II. That might be the agenda of the priest, who knows. I would love to reintroduce Latin not to go back to pre-Vatican II, as you can probably tell from my opinions thus far. I have no interest in going back to before Vatican II. I don't even know that Mass, and I don't really plan on ever celebrating it. But Latin is a beautiful language, and we have a ton of beautiful hymns, at least. I mean, we go to the opera. We don't understand the opera. It's still beautiful. There's tons of beautiful Latin hymns that we can, that, I mean, if our choir learns and sings, they would be a profound experience, even if we don't understand every word. I mean, I don't understand every word of most songs that I listen to, even if they're in English. So the, uh, I think that, that is something we could bring back, because we have 2,000 years of tradition. I mean, Palestrina and his amazing, I mean, we still do that at the opera, or at the symphony. Uh, beautiful polyphony and chant. Now, I would not want chant unless it was good. Uh, if chant, when chant is not done well, it's the worst of all music. It sounds like a dirge. So, if we were going to do any sort of chant, we would need to do it well. But it is our duty, on some level, to know our cultural history uh, in, in the Roman Rite and to preserve that in some way. Now, whether or not we do it exactly as um, Sacros on the Concilium suggests, which is to do all of the common prayers in Latin, I don't think that's necessary, partly because that's a decent portion of the Mass, and we, given the fact that we have new people coming all the time, that's not, it just doesn't come across super welcoming. Um, it comes across, it's hard to make that a warm experience. Um, but the occasional song or even, you know, Sanctus, 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 kind of, or the Lamb of God, like those, those like small prayers done in a beautiful tone, I think that could be fruitful moving down the road. We'll see. Um, really, I'm going to let people decide in terms of like, hey, I want to start a chant choir and I have 15 people who want to join me. I'm like, Go for it. Run it up the flagpole. See if anyone salutes it. That's And then um, kneeling, as we learned uh, from Bishop 
and as I preached about the other day, um, is still is still sort of asked for. It's still in the rubrics of the Mass at certain points, um, just during the consecration and, and then after the Lamb of God. Uh, and that that's different slightly than the low Mass. In the low Mass, you're pretty much kneeling the whole time until you receive communion. But actually, you still receive communion kneeling. But the uh, so it's been reduced, but still sort of asked for at particular parts of the Mass. Uh, Gregorian chant and polyphony, as I just mentioned. Uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium 116 says, The Church acknowledges Gregorian chant as specially suited to the Roman liturgy. Therefore, other things being equal, it should be given pride of place during liturgical services. Other kinds of sacred music, especially polyphony, are by no means excluded from liturgical celebrations so long as they are accord with the spirit of liturgical action. What it means when it says something like accord with the spirit of liturgical action is polyphony had gotten to the point where, so the point of chant when it was introduced was to say the words of the mass loud enough for everyone to actually hear. It was, the goal of it was for people to know what was going on. So it was it was clear and it was, um, it's, instead of polyphony, it's, What's the, when it's solo, when it's one voice? Not monotone, it's a, anyways, chant. So chant was a single, there's no harmonizing going on, there's no, there's no overlapping of voices. Polyphony had gotten to the point where you couldn't understand the words. You, you couldn't understand what was being sung because they were overlapping and there was harmonizing all over the place. Palestrina was the one who's considered to have saved polyphony because he, did it in a way that you could still understand the words. And that was the only reason why the church allowed polyphony was because of him. Because he set a precedent for writing polyphony in a way that was still understood. And then it got to the point where we just ceased to understand Latin, so it didn't matter what you were doing, chant or polyphony, no one was understanding what you were singing. So... Yeah. Yeah, so that's why there's... If you go to a Latin Mass, there's these points when, so the, the choir's chanting, and they're chanting the exact same thing that the priest is saying silently. And he's saying it, and he's saying it faster than they're chanting it because he's not going to say it that slow. And then, so there's, there'll, there'll be random points where the priest just stops, goes over, and sits down, waits for them to stop, like be done, and then gets up and goes over and starts another part of the Mass, and then they start chanting again after they get their breath. And then, you know, he'll finish before them and he'll stop and go and sit down. And there's like two or three points during the Mass where that happens because it just doesn't time up well. And that's also another thing where you're just like, I mean, it was necessary in the time, but now we just have microphones. You can just say it. Now, it might be slightly less beautiful, but it's also way more logistically possible because most places didn't have a chant choir that could do that. So most places you weren't getting any of it. So now, at least everyone can hear it. And honestly, if we have a chant choir that can chant beautiful things, amazing. Um, so you do sacrifice a little of the beauty in places where it's still possible. But in most places, you get a lot more than you were getting. So then, um, yeah, the chant, or the, and then organ. Uh, the pipe organ is to be held in high esteem. Traditional musical instrument, which adds a wonderful splendor to the church's ceremonies. Uh, other instruments, 
may be used with the permission of the local bishop. Pretty much every bishop is given permission for other instruments. Uh, there's, there's an argument from some people that like only instruments that are not percussive. And that's, that is part of the tradition of the church, that percussive instruments were not allowed in the church, which actually excludes piano, <laughs> because the piano is a percussive instrument. I'm like, I just don't, I mean, that's a little much. Piano is a beautiful instrument, and it seems to go so well with the liturgy, although I grew up Methodist. So piano's always been a part of the Methodist church. Uh, it has not, it's actually a sort of new thing in the Catholic church to have piano. Uh, but I think it's a beautiful instrument and worthy of the liturgy, even though it's technically percussive. Uh, now, a full drum set, that that's a little jarring in the, I, I mean, for praise and worship, have a drum set. But in terms of the flow of the mass and the sort of, you have silence and then suddenly a drum set. So I think there's a way to do a drum beat in a classy manner, uh, but a straight drum set with cymbals and all that, I do, I do think that that's, you'd have to be do that very specifically. I've seen churches where they're in the glass box and they're using the sort of like brush sticks. And once you do all of that, it gets to the point where you're like, okay, this sounds sort of like calming and beautiful. But when I think of drums, I think of like metal. And I'm into metal, just not in the context of the liturgy. <laughs> Oh, fall on drum set. Hmm. I mean, I've seen people do it well. Sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there's a movement in the church called... What is it called? Dang it. Uh... Teen Life, I think. Teen Life. Yeah, so they started in Phoenix, and I went to the church where Teen Life started, and they did praise and worship, full band praise and worship, during the liturgy, in a way that was noble and beautiful. And But I, I will say, it is hard to do. I mean, it's, it's sort of like... Uh, I mean, it sort of has to be the thing you invest in. I mean, that's basically what evangelical super churches... Uh, Sure. 